Let's pray. Lord God, your word teaches us that a hearing ear you have made. Today I pray for every person under the sound of my voice, including myself, to have that hearing ear, that we would hear your voice, we would see the revelation that you cho- you choose this day to show us. And I pray that your word would come alive to us by the work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would enable me to to do an expository rendering, an exegesis of this psalm. But at the end of the day, we want your truth. At the end of the day, what we really need is not a what, but a who, because we need you more than anything else. Pray in the name of Jesus, everyone said, Amen. Amen. We are continuing our summer series as we journey through the Psalms. We're not necessarily stopping at every Psalm, but those that we feel like the Lord has illuminated and would share with us. I was pretty positive that uh, I had picked the right Psalm today when I saw the songs that we sang. I don't know if somebody's been looking at my notes or the Facebook uh, title, which is, William, go ahead and put it up, Satisfaction in a Dry and Weary Land. Now, if you if you are, have not been in a dry and weary land, um, boy, do you have a great experience awaiting you. <laughs> Just take good notes, because one day you'll be in a place where you'll need to draw on God and God's truth. We're going to look at Psalm 63 in a moment. If you want to be turning or dialing or whatever. But this psalm teaches us that in the most dire of circumstances. And in my opinion, and we'll get to it, but in my opinion, it's probably one of the, one of the most dire I could ever even imagine. But in the most dire circumstances, David, King David, finds sustenance and satisfaction in God. By the way, we were talking about this the other day. We always joke about Peter, and we like Peter because he gets us in. (laughs) David gets us in too, folks. I mean, here's an adulterer and a murderer. And God says, he's the apple of my eye. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your seed will remain on the throne for eternity. Your seed will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't understand that. Because what we do in the church, when somebody messes up, we want to eliminate them. God redeems them. Imagine that. Your seed. In the most dire of circumstances, he finds a place of sustenance 
and satisfaction in God. And here's one, and this is going, Lord, help me to express this. This psalm's going to teach us, and we're going to be reminded that we are spirit beings who require resources from a spirit God. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, what did he tell her? He said, God is spirit. Now, I'm not trying to be spooky, but God is a spirit person. And when you, before you were born again by the spirit of God, you were spiritually dead. Bible talks about it all through the scripture, that you were spiritually dead. And that's why if you're spiritually dead and you're seeking some kind of satisfaction, you're seeking some kind of fulfillment, you look everywhere. You look anywhere. And that's why when we're unsaved or saved and living by the flesh, that's why we go after the five senses. Because we, we know we can find some kind of fulfillment in those senses. And yet, at the end of the day, we realize that we, we don't find it there. We don't satisfy. But then God comes along and he reaches into your cesspool of life. And he pulls you out. He changes you. See, being born again or being born by the Spirit of God from above is not just a decision you make. Uh, it's way more than making the decision for Christ. It's Christ making the decision for you. And when he does this, something takes place in you. And Ephesians says, Ephesians 2 says, he has made us Alive through Christ. He's made us alive with Christ. So now you were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. And now you are a spirit being in need of a spirit God. Again, I'm not trying to get spooky. You know me, I'm nuts and bolts. Mostly nuts. But we'll, and we'll get to more of this in the psalm, but I want us to really see this. And we sang some songs today. We need God. Well, that's nice and religious sounding. No, it's, it's like, it's, it's the air that you need. It, you know, we sing a song. It's, it's the air that I breathe. And as a spirit being, you need to draw resources from a spirit God. Okay, I'm going to quit beating. And this psalm also teaches that where we lay out or where we lay our focus determines our perspective and our circumstances. You've heard me say that sometimes God changes your circumstances. Often, God does not change your circumstances, but he changes you in your circumstances. And we'll see that in this psalm. Psalm 63 um, I'm going to read the whole psalm, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you would stand while we read the sacred scriptures. 
O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in. Everybody say as in. That's a key phrase in this psalm. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, we sang about this this morning, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for the jackals, but the king... And he's speaking of himself there, shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You can be seated. Often, if you, as you're reading the Psalms, often they are written in the context of an experience, and sometimes we know that experience. There are, there are some Psalms we have no idea what precipitated. Uh, Psalm 51, we know, was written after Nathan confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba. And so David wrote Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Which is one of the reasons why God uses him or used him the way he did. It wasn't that he God likes sinners. It got, it, God likes repentant sinners. The setting. We know the setting of this one. There's some debate uh, about whether or not, uh, well, there's a couple of settings, but I think it's pretty clear what's happening here. And I can't tell the whole story, but I would recommend if you're a note taker, if you'd write down Second Kings, um, I mean, I'm sorry, Second Samuel. About about chapter 14 or so, and just read right on through 19, chapter 19. And if I get too boring, you just do it today. I don't care. But uh, as long as you read. The setting is important to this psalm. You can't really appreciate this psalm unless you view the setting. Now, here's the thumbnail sketch, the cliff notes of the setting. And that is that David's son, Absalom, has um, decided that he is going to abdicate the throne from his father. And he begins doing it by deception, by cunning, by lying. And he gathers 20 guys, and then he gathers 50 guys, and then he gathers 200 guys. And through deception and, and misleading he begins to make a play for the throne. Now, I have my own qualms with David's fathering. <laughs> Let's say. I'm not going to knock him, but, but I think some of the problems here are due to his lack of fathering. But at some point, 
Absalom, David leaves Jerusalem because he's afraid of his own son. And he runs and he hides. And Absalom assumes illegally the throne that his father had formerly occupied. I don't, I can't imagine, I guess I can, but this is why I say dire circumstances. Your own son. Your own son turns on you. Your own son turns against you. Multiple times people said, hey, we'll just take Absalom out. And David said, David had a heart for his son. He said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. And even, even when the, uh, <laughs> near the end of this story, Absalom evidently had a huge head of hair. <laughs> In the early seventies, we had a, um, in Panama City, we had a, a fundamentalist Baptist preacher in town who was very well known. And uh, he preached a sermon one time. The title of it was The Hanging of a Hippie. <laughs> he didn't like hippies. And he... And he was teaching on this story with Absalom because at some point Absalom is running because David's guys are chasing him. He's running away and he goes through a thicket and he, and he gets hung up in this tree. Some people think that his hair got tangled up in the branches. Some people think that his neck got caught in a fork and of course his mule or whatever he was riding just kept on going, the hanging of a hippie. And, uh, and he was there dangling. Couldn't get loose. And somebody told Joab, of course, David, when they went out to go get Absalom, the last thing David told him was, don't harm the boy. I mean, here, here, he's already, he's abdicated, abdicated the throne. He's ran, run his father out of town. He probably would have killed his father if that's what it meant. And yet David's heart, David's heart as a father still says, don't harm the boy. And one of the boys comes running to Joab, David's right-hand guy. He said, hey, the hippie's hanging in the tree. What do you want to do? Well, let's, what are you doing talking to me? You should go take care of him. He said, yeah, but they, the king said don't touch him. Joab said, I'll do it. And so Joab went and got a spear and stabbed him in his heart three times. The end of Absalom. This psalm is written while David is hiding. In the wilderness of Judah, hiding from his own son, hiding probably from his own fears. Think, I want you to feel the emotion of David in that, in that moment. Because you can't appreciate this psalm unless you see where he is. It can't get any worse for King David. And he says, in that in that atmosphere and in that context, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. By the way, I've got these scriptures here. Let me go back, William. Oh, you, I never got there. 
Second Samuel sixteen fourteen, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. He's running from from Absalom, and there he refreshed himself. Note the word weary. Seventeen one, uh, Ahithophel. I had to look that one up said to Absalom, because he was one of his guys, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll go get him. Verse 2 of that same chapter. I will come upon him, watch this, while he is weary and discouraged. And throw him into a panic. All the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. In other words, I'm only going to kill your daddy. Later in that chapter, some men come to David, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Mahanam, Mahanam, um, just call it Montgomery. <laughs> and it says some men brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat for it. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Very clear that the condition of David's army was beat down, hungry, thirsty, weary. And David writes, O God, you songwriters, you know some of the best songs that you've written we're in the lowest parts of your life. Some of the best songs you've written were when you were facing personal challenges and you wrote about those. I'm not wishing personal challenges upon you, but I do wish that you can write a hit song. Weary, oh God, oh God, you are my God. You see, I'm going to come back to this maybe, but I would have been in that moment went, oh, Absalom, oh, son, what in the round world is wrong with you? I would have focused on him. I would have focused on his armies. I would have said, where did I go wrong? What did I do? What did I not do? David said, oh, God. You are my God. It's interesting that in that sentence he uses two names, two terms to refer to God. He says, O God, which in the Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is just the entirety of God. It's the plurality of God. It's the, it's the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Elohim is all that God is. But then he says, O God, you are my God. And th- this time he just uses the word El, E-L which means strong one, or my strong. Oh, oh, Elohim, oh, God of all gods, you are my strong tower. Not the outcome of this circumstance, but you are. You are my God. He says, so I seek you. My soul thirsts. My flesh faints in a dry and weary land. 
When I saw that, I saw the entirety of, of a human being who's been born again by the Spirit of God. He said, I, you know, your spirit being, your spirit is really who you are. One of these days, this this tabernacle is going to drop. That heart's going to quit beating. You're going to be, you're going to have a lifeless body. But you're not going to die. Your spirit will live on. I, me, the real I, want to seek you. My soul, which is our, our will and our emotions. My soul thirsts for you. We sang this this morning. My soul thirsts for you. Again, you need this. You need God himself. And then he says, my flesh faints. And I thought of this verse in Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, everybody say, entirely. See, God's interested in all of who you are. And that your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the entirety of who you are would draw from God the Father. Now, information is good. Information is helpful. But if you have information without formation, then you're just an egghead. If the information cannot transform you, like Cindy was talking about, you can't separate intellectual from the Spirit of God. Because it's what the Spirit of God does with the intellectual information. You need a spiritual God. You need a spirit God. I need. Because we're spirit beings. We are spiritual beings living in a human body. And he said, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. In other words, I saw you. I saw you in the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary, saints? God's presence. I have saw, I saw you in the sanctuary, including your power and your glory. I looked upon you, which is a, a Hebrew word that means to gaze upon. He just, he, he said, I have gazed upon you. Why is the last time you gazed upon God? I don't want to hear the answer to that. Well, I don't want you to ask me. When's the last time that you gazed at him? And you see, our relationship with God is usually this. Hey, God, it's me again. Let me tell you what I need. Boy, this has gone wrong, and that's gone wrong. And, boy, you know, I, I gave up money for Lent. Can you help me out? See, that's our relationship with God. And he does say bring your petitions to him. But how about we start somewhere else? How about gaze? He said, I have gazed upon you. And then he says, I have beheld you or I'm beholding you, which is another word that just means that we realize or perceive him. We gaze and then we have some perception of God. Now, you can't see all that God is. You can't even understand all that God is because your mind would blow up. Your brain would explode if you could 
if you ever touch to who God really is and all that God is. You just, but God will let you see some of who he is. And he understood that leaving behind the sanctuary in Jerusalem, he realized there was a real awareness of God among his people in the presence of God. And he was missing that. He was hiding in the wilderness of Judah. And he was missing that place of God's presence where he saw him. He gazed upon him. And he realized and had perception of God in that moment. By the way, and this is just really just an aside, but we see here in this passage the full gamut of worship. Because in verse 2, he says, I see you. In verse 3, he says, my lips shall praise you. In verse 4, my hands will raise. Verse 5, my soul will worship you. Verse 5, my mouth. There's every part of our being, we worship God. Not just with our tithe. He said, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because you are a God who is steadfast. Because you are a God who is always there. God's character is summed up in his name, his name Yahweh. A good definition of the word Yahweh is just this. He brings into existence whatever exists. I know it sounds like I've been smoking a little funny looking cigarettes, but let me say it again. He brings into existence whatever exists. That's Yahweh. That's God. He exists and he continues to exist. He's never ceased to exist. He never will cease to exist. He's been before the beginning of time, and he'll be here after the end of time. And you know, time was just made for us. It don't mean a thing to him. That's who he is. But his character is summed up by his name, and also his covenant love, hesed, or kesed, or in the New Testament, agape. And that's, we really have a hard time in the English language with that word. Because we don't know what to do with it. We, we see things like unfailing love. We see things like unconditional love. And, and really, if you took all of the definitions that we've tried to put together and, and piled them together, you probably might get close to what hesed really means. And if I was Jewish, I could say that correctly. But I'm not, so I can't. That's his love. It's not a love that has a feeling. It's a love that has a commitment. So he says, he said, because your steadfast love is better than life, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will bless you. Now, let me ask you a question. I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Is that what we're thinking about when we're in a dry and weary land? Are we thinking, if I'm in a dry and weary land in my life, a dry and weary place, and all of us have been there, if you hadn't been there, you never, you hadn't lived, is that what I'm thinking, I will bless you? Well, maybe I'm the only one in the room that's fleshly, but that's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy, what in the world is going, what, what did I do to make God mad? 
He said, I'll bless you as long as I live. I will bless you. I will raise my hands in your name. I will praise you. Michael Wilcock wrote a book on Psalms. He said, the soul which was thirsty at the beginning of this psalm, remember that? That soul at the midpoint is confident of being satisfied. Because what did he say? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Even in the writing of this song, and again, some of you songwriters can appreciate this, but in, in the midst of the crafting of this song, as he gets further into the song, his perspective changes. He's thirsty. He's about to die. By the time he gets to the middle, he says, hey, I'm going to find some satisfaction. The satisfaction that I'm going to find is is not in anything or anyone except God himself. You've heard me say that the blessing that God wants to pour out in your life, the blessing is God himself. It's not just things and stuff. I mean, that's it's a blessing when God takes care of you. But the real blessing that we get is God. He's the blessing. There's no life outside of him. And David, even though it's a wearisome outlook, even though it, in the, when he's writing this song, Absalom is raining, he's kicking up, he's having a good time, even in the midst of that, he remembered what he had seen in the past. I said this recently, I may have even said it on the midweek video I do so many midweek videos. You know, did you realize that every week has a mid part of it? <laughs> Somebody talked me into doing these midweek videos and never told me that every week had a mid part. <laughs> so I don't remember sometimes which ones I've done. But anyway, while, while we do not live in the past and we do not want to live in the past, it is a good thing to do what David did. David said, I remember being in your presence. I looked. And remember what we have seen in the past. And I think I said on this week's midweek video that sometimes you need to look back and remember what God has done to you, to you well, to you, and with you, and for you. Because... We think now, this is it. This is the end. <laughs> We're about to crumble. I'm about to go under. There's no hope. But when you look back, you start identifying. Well, I remember that time. Oh, I remember that time. I remember. And you start going down history and you realize in every instance, God somehow Delivered you from what you thought was the flaming fire. And that gets you through now. Well, if he did it then, if he's faithful then, he's going to be faithful now. But if you forget the past, you forget who God is. You forget the past where God made himself known and real to us.
I can't cover every verse, but he says in verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. As I was looking at this, I saw a different perspective. It's not the only perspective, but I saw a different perspective about the shadow of his wings. And it's this, maybe, maybe my darkness, listen, sound like Charles Stanley, didn't I? Now, he went to heaven. I don't know what that means. Did God give me his anointing to say, listen? I don't know. In the, in the shadow of his wings, maybe my darkness is the shadow of his wings. Maybe. Francis Thompson wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven. And in this classic poem, he wrote, Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? What you think is darkness and death is nothing more than the shadow of God's wings protecting you. I can't see it. That's all right. God sees it. I can't see where I'm going. Well, just follow him. If the wings move, you move. Maybe. And then we get to a difficult part of the song, and I'm going to close in nine minutes and 23 seconds. <laughs> you believe that? <laughs> Got some oceanfront property out there in Lagardo for you. <laughs> we see God the Avenger. We see God the Avenger. God the Avenger is not the difficult part, but it's who God has to has to deal with to avenge David. It's his own son, and he says, "Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth." He knew he was talking about Absalom. Now he was also talking about all those nut, nut jobs around him. But he was talking about his own son. Let me see if I let me just see if I can word this. David knows that in God's sovereign justice, that Absalom and his army had to pay the price. God could not, it's not it's not that God would not, but God could not. Wink his eye at that. They had to be dealt with. And it it didn't matter that it was David's son. I mean, it mattered to David, but the it still had to be dealt with. So David is making room for God. Because I want I would have wanted to get in the way. That's why this is so tough. You know, if it's some other Yehu who showed up on the scene, you might have a little less. Go ahead, Lord. Hang the hippie. But David loved his son Absalom. Even unto death. He mourned. As a matter of fact, he got in trouble with his army commanders because he was mourning Absalom and they got mad at him. So this guy tried to kill you. This guy, and you want to mourn him. Well, maybe they didn't have kids. I don't know. But David, he still loved his son. 
And he says, those who set themselves against God's anointed king can only expect defeat. And so David is, in, in his writing these last few verses, he's getting out of the way. He's not happy about it. And if you read 2 Samuel 14 all the way, whatever, through 19, I forget where it ends. If you read that, you will see that he's brokenhearted about this. But he also knows he got to get out of the way. He's got to make room for God to do what God does. And what is it that God does? Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. And of course, they included a, a large host of people, but they also included his son. And I don't know how you do this, but he said the king, speaking of himself, shall rejoice in God. The king shall rejoice in God. You have to be able to look beyond and around all the things happening. You don't, you say, well, I don't understand. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club that says, I don't understand all that God's doing. I don't understand all that God's not doing. I get that all the time. Well, I just don't understand. I said, well, if you do, would you let me know? You know, I referenced it recently, but if you go over to Second Peter, Peter talks about Paul's letters. He said, our beloved brother Paul, he wrote some really good letters, but none of us really know what he's talking about. That's Peter. The king will rejoice in God and all who swear by him, by God shall exalt, exult in the mouths of the liars, are going to be stopped. God's going to do what God does. But what's the, what's the sum total of this psalm? The sum total is David, in the, in the most dire of circumstances that I think he could be in, runs to God. Why? He understands that he, he seeks God. He understands that his soul thirsts for God. He understands that his flesh faints for God. The entirety of his being needs God himself. I'm not talking about just doing religious things or being religious. I said before, I'd rather, I'd rather deal with a demon-possessed person than a religious spirit. It, a religious spirit is nasty. And you can't do anything with it because the person who's got the religious spirit and the people around them who have religious spirits think they're great. A demon, you can cast a demon out and be done with it. But I'm not talking about just doing religious activities. I'm talking about, I'm talking about our God is a real person. Our God is a real person who is, Jesus said, God is spirit. We are spiritual beings who need spiritual sustenance from a spiritual God to keep us going. You need what God has to keep you alive. You need, I need the life that emanates from God the Father to get us through the day and the week. We think if we do enough religious exercises, that's going to get us through. And I'm telling you, it won't. Now do good things. Do good works. 
But don't expect just because you do good works that you're going to receive that spiritual sustenance from God. You might if you're doing it with the right heart. But first and foremost, you say, I I saw you in the sanctuary. I remember. And that's where I'm headed. Here's the great thing. We hadn't got to remember a physical sanctuary. You hadn't got to think about, well, I wish I could get down to that church house. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Don't tell anybody outside of here. You can pray somewhere besides this room. You can. And you should. There's nothing sacred about this room except that it belongs to God. Hmm. Stand with me.